Greetings, and welcome to Etzheim's weekly podcast, recorded live in Richardson, Texas. We invite you now to join us for one of our synagogue's Shabbat messages. All right, well, Shabbat Shalom. Uh, we're in a series uh, on the Gospel of the Book of Mark. Today is part 20. We're just about halfway there. And we're going to look today at the climax of the first half of the Book of Mark, where Peter gives his great confession of faith. So turn with me to Mark chapter 8, beginning in verse 27. Mark eight twenty-seven. Yeshua and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others say one of the prophets. But what about you? He asked, who do you say I am? And Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the Mashiach. Yeshua warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the Torah teachers and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this uh, and Shimon, Peter, took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Yeshua turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Hasatan, he said. You don't have in mind the concerns of God, but really human concerns, the, the things of man. Then he called uh, the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple, this is for all of us. He's saying, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. For what good is it for you if you gain the whole world and yet forfeit your soul? Or what can you give in exchange for your soul? If any of you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, some of you who are standing here won't taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Amen. In the first half of the book of Mark, chapters 1 through 8, everything revolves around this question. Who is Yeshua? Who is this? And at the end of the first half of the book, at the climax of the first half of the gospel, Peter finally gets it, or at least begins to get it. And he says, you're the Messiah, you're the anointed one. Uh, and in Judaism, Mashiach, the anointed one, it means you're the king to end all kings. You're the true king. You're the king that's going to put everything right. You're the Messiah, he says. Yeshua says, yes, you're right. Uh, but it's not the whole story. Uh, he immediately then turns and says things that are absolutely appalling and shocking to the disciples. He says, yes, I'm a king. I'm the king. But I'm not anything like the king you were expecting. Now, this key, this key pivotal passage tells us two basic things on the overhead. Two things in this passage. Number one, first Yeshua says, yes, I'm a king, but I'm a king on a cross. And number two, if you want to follow me, you've got to go to the cross also. On the overhead. Uh, I'm, I'm the king on a cross. And if you want to follow me, you must take up your cross. 
you have to go to the cross too. First, uh, verse 31, Yeshua says, uh, I'm a king, I'm the king, I'm the Messiah, but I'm not the one you were expecting. I'm a king going to a cross. Look at Mark 8:31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the Torah teachers, that he must be killed and for three days rise again. Okay, let's break this down. Almost every word in this, this verse is, is, is crucial. The first term we see here in verse 31 is Yeshua's favorite self-designation, Son of Man. He calls himself here again and again uh, the Son of Man. Now, on one level, he's saying, I'm the quintessential human being. But it's much, much more than that. Because this is an eschatological term from Daniel 7, uh, of a divine figure who's given our rule and authority and kingdom and power and dominion and majesty. So look at Daniel 7, verse 13. Daniel writes, in my night vision, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him, the son of man. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will never pass away. His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Notice that according to Daniel, this divine being is in the form of a human being. It's called the Son of Man. And yet, all the nations and all the people worship him, and we know that only God is worshipped. He's coming to earth with the clouds of heaven. He's given all authority and glory and power, an everlasting eternal kingdom and kingship. This is, he, this is who Yeshua is declaring he is when he says, I am the Son of Man. Yeshua identifies himself with this divine figure who comes with the heavenly host, uh, the clouds of heaven, to put everything right. He's a messianic figure, a divine heavenly figure. And then Yeshua says this about himself, uh, Mark 8, verse 38. If any of you are ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of you when he comes with his fa- in his Father's glory with all the holy angels. He says, someday I'm going to return to earth in my Father's glory and the clouds of heaven, i.e. with the holy angels. So the Son of Man term he keeps using for himself is this divine, messianic, heavenly figure who's worshipped by all the people as God. But then back in 31, he throws a bombshell. And he says, this Son of Man, this divine figure I've just described, I've just alluded to, this Son of Man must suffer. And at this point... Yeshua is bringing two ideas together that had never been brought together before on the overhead. Never before has anyone in Israel connected suffering with the Messiah. Never before has anyone said Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah son of Joseph, and Mashiach ben David, Messiah son of David, were one and the same person. Yes, the Tanakh clearly talks about a suffering servant, as in Isaiah 53, but no one before Yeshua had applied these texts to the coming Messiah, the Son of Man, who would rule and reign and judge the earth on the overhead. Because the idea that the Messiah could suffer, that the Son of Man, uh, this incredible, all-powerful, divine figure, could suffer, made no sense to anyone in Israel at the time. 
Because the Messiah is supposed to come and make everything right in the world. And defeat all evil and injustice. Now, how can he possibly defeat all evil and injustice if he's killed? And that's why we're told, the minute Yeshua says this, Peter rebukes him. And by the way, this is the same word Yeshua uses to rebuke demons. Peter is rebuking Yeshua in the strongest possible language. Why is Peter so freaked out? He's so freaked out because he's always been told that when the Messiah comes, he's going to go to Jerusalem, defeat all evil and injustice by going to the throne. And Yeshua says, yes, I'm the Messiah. I'm the king. Yes, I'm going to Jerusalem to defeat all evil and injustice. But I'm going to do it not by going to a throne, but to a cross. Do you know what the cross meant? The cross was the epitome of helplessness and shame. Every other form of execution gave the victim some dignity. But on the cross, you're stripped naked. You're nailed open. Everyone can gawk at you. Uh, It was the epitome of helplessness and shame. It was the, the exact opposite of going to a throne. It was made of wood, just like thrones are made of wood. But it was the exact opposite of a throne on the overhead. And Yeshua says, that's where I'm going. I'm not going to Jerusalem to live, but to die. I'm not going to Jerusalem to take power, but to lose it. I'm not going to Jerusalem to rule, but to serve. And to lay down my life as a ransom for many. And that's how I'm going to defeat evil and injustice and put everything right. That was, that was astounding. But then on top of all that, Yeshua doesn't say the Son of Man will suffer. He actually says in the Greek, the Son of Man must suffer. Yeshua says the Son of Man must suffer many things and he must be killed. He purposely uses this word must. Yeshua is saying not just that I've come to die, but that I have to die. It's absolutely necessary that I die. The world cannot be changed and renewed. And your life cannot be changed and renewed unless I die. Now, why would this be? Why would it be absolutely necessary for Yeshua to die? Why does he he say, I have to die? On the overhead, the scriptures... And historic, both Christian and Messianic theology, have typically given three answers for this question of why he must die, all three of which are true. Uh, it was absolutely necessary for us personally, absolutely necessary for us legally, absolutely necessary for us cosmically. Why did Yeshua have to die? First, absolutely necessary for us personally. One theologian, his name is uh, William Vanstone, He says, all human beings know the difference between true and false love, uh, fake and authentic love. On the overhead, in fake or false love, you use the other person to fulfill your happiness. So your affection and your love is conditional. You do it only as long as the other person is affirming you and and meeting your needs. And it's also non-vulnerable, this fake love, uh, because you hold back so you can cut your losses if necessary. Uh, the aim is to use the other person to fulfill your happiness, and therefore the love is conditional and non-vulnerable. On the overhead, though, but in true love, 
Your aim is to spend yourself and use yourself for the happiness of the other person. Because your greatest joy is that other person's joy. That's true love. And therefore your affection is unconditional. You give it regardless of whether or not that person is meeting your needs. And it's radically vulnerable. You spend everything. You give it all away. You will hold nothing back. And the problem is this. No one is capable fully of giving true love. We can't give it to each other. We radically want it. We desperately need it. Uh, but we can't give it. No one is fully capable of true love. All of our love is at least somewhat self-centered and therefore somewhat fake. Why? We need love. Like we need water and air. Uh, we can't live without it. Uh, and therefore, there's a certain mercenariness, if you will, to our, all of our relationships. We look for people who, well, if I got that person's love, that would really affirm me. Uh, so, so we invest our love only where we think we can get a good return. But when you do that, that means to at least some degree, your love is conditional and non-vulnerable. Because to some degree, you're not loving that person totally for themselves, uh, but for the love that you're getting back from them. Uh, and that's what you're really after. So no one can fully give anyone else the love that we're really starved for. So we're all starving for this true, unconditional, vulnerable love. Uh, we can't give it to others. We're desperately searching for it. And we're all in the same boat. So what we need is someone to love us who doesn't need us at all. We need someone who loves us radically. Someone who loves us unconditionally. Someone who loves us vulnerably and yet doesn't need us a bit. Someone who loves us just for our own sake, not for their own sake. Loves us unconditionally, loves us radically, loves us vulnerably. Well, now, who is capable of something like that? You see, if we got that kind of love, that would so assure us of our own value, that would so fill us up and make us so confident, if we felt that kind of true love, then we could, in turn, Start to give that kind of true love to others. But who's capable of giving us that true love? And the overhead. The answer is him. Only Yeshua. He left. There's a famous hymn that says he left his father's throne above. So free. So infinite his grace. Emptied himself of all but love. And bled for Adam's helpless race. He left his father's throne above. Why? The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit from all eternity have been knowing and loving each other perfectly, eternally, within the unity of the Godhead. From all eternity, perfectly loving one another. And therefore, God within himself, God had all this love, God had all this blessing, God had all this fulfillment, and all this joy that he could possibly want. So that then why then did he create us? He clearly does not need us. And why did he redeem us at great cost to himself? And the answer, the only answer, is he's doing it because he loves us. And he wants our joy more than he wants his own. He doesn't need us, but he loves us. And that's perfect love. That's unconditional love. 
That's absolutely radically vulnerable love. And when you begin to get it, when you begin to get that kind of love, when you begin to feel it, you begin to experience it, you can then begin to start giving your own love to others. And, and the fake love begins to disappear. And you've now got the security uh, to reach out and start giving true love to other people. And the overhead. And that's why Yeshua says, I must suffer. I must die for you. I must give myself for you. Otherwise, you won't be capable of that kind of love yourself. On the overhead. Only on the cross, therefore, do we see true love. Other religions talk about God as love in general ways. But only Messianic faith, only Yeshua faith, even claims that God has given us a love like this. Vulnerable. No other religion believes that God became vulnerable, unconditional, the kind of love we most need. So Yeshua says, I must suffer and die so that you can live a life of love. So we need Yeshua's death and resurrection personally. On the overhead, number two, we need it legally. Uh, Let's briefly look at how forgiveness works on a human level. So we can then see how it works on a divine level. Now, when somebody wrongs you, really wrongs you, there's always a debt uh, that has to be paid by somebody. So here's an easy example. Let's say you invite somebody to your house and they accidentally break one of your lamps. You've got two options. Either you can make him pay for a new lamp or you can say, don't worry about it, I forgive you. And then you have to pay for a new lamp. Or you have to sit in the dark. (laughs) So either you absorb the cost of this debt, or your friend pays the cost. But the point is that debt doesn't just go away. Somebody has to pay. Now, this does not just work on an economic level. When someone really wrongs you, let's say they rob you of an opportunity, or or rob you of happiness, or, or rob you of your reputation, really wrongs you, this person take something away from you that you'll never get back. That's a sense of debt. There's a sense this person owes you. There's a sense that justice has been violated. And you can't just shrug it off. Now once you realize and sense that debt, there's only two things you can do. Uh, First, you can try to make them pay. You can try to harm them. uh, Take away their opportunities. uh, Harm their reputation can hope for or actually uh, threaten or actually affect uh, their own suffering Uh, they made you suffer you're going to make them suffer that's the first option you can try to make them pay the debt but there's only one problem with that as you're making them pay as you're making them suffer and as you're harming them because of what they did to you you're becoming like them You're becoming harder, you're becoming colder, you're becoming like the perpetrator. You're giving in to the dark side. Okay, what else can you do? What's the other option? The other option, instead of making them pay, is to forgive. But you can't just forgive. It doesn't work that way. When you refuse vengeful thoughts that you so much want to have... When you refuse vengeful actions that you so much want to have, that you so much want to do, it hurts. When you refrain, when you forgive, that's agony. You're suffering. Why? 
Because you're absorbing the cost. Instead of making them suffer, you're absorbing the cost. That's what forgiveness is on the overhead. Forgiveness always entails suffering. If you've really, really ever truly been wronged and you forgive, you suffer. Or you refuse to, refuse to forgive and you make them suffer. But when a wrong has been committed and a debt has been incurred, someone will pay. Someone will suffer. The debt does not just disappear into thin air. Somebody pays. Either they pay or you pay. But here's the irony. Only if you pay that cost of forgiveness, only if you absorb that debt, only if you're willing, if you're willing to, only if you're willing to take on that suffering, is there any chance of seeking real justice? Only then is there a chance of righting the wrong. You know why? If you go to confront someone, you try to, try to show them how they've wronged you, and you try to bring them to account, try to open up their eyes. If you have vengeance in your heart, if you have vengeance in your heart, they will never listen to you in a million years. You'll just enhance this cycle of endless retaliation and retaliation and retaliation back. But only if you've really gone through the suffering and the cost of forgiveness so that you've uh, refrained from, from the need for vengeance, only then do you have any hope of, reach, of really reaching them and bringing them to account and getting them to see and admit uh, their sin. Now let's apply this concept to the cross. Yeshua is saying, I must suffer and die. If we know on a human level that forgiveness always entails suffering, uh, for the, suffering for the forgiver, and we know that on a human level, that if we're ever going to have any hope uh, of rectifying and righting wrongs, uh, it's by paying the cost of suffering. Why does it surprise us then when God says, the only way I can forgive the sins of mankind is if I suffer? Yeshua said, I must suffer. Either you're going to pay the penalty for your sins, or I will, he says. Either you pay the penalty that's to be inflicted, or I must bear the penalty. Don't you see on the overhead, forgiveness always entails suffering. So the only way that he can forgive us and pardon us, the only way he cannot judge us, is if he goes to the cross himself, in our place. And absorbs our debt. So we see Yeshua doing on the cross. uh, Eternally and ultimately for us. What we then must do on a human level. In terms of forgiving one another. Yeshua says I must suffer and die. And the overhead. So his suffering and his death are absolutely necessary. Number one personally. uh, Number two legally. And then finally number three cosmically. Yeshua had to die. But could he have just thrown himself off a cliff? No, no, of course not. His manner of death is very important. Yeshua says, the elders, the chief priests, the Torah teachers, uh, they're all going to come against me. And these groups, together with the Romans, uh, these were the legal authorities in Israel at the time. These were the human authorities that should have been standing up for justice, but instead were perpetrating and perpetuating acts of injustice. Yeshua was the victim of injustice. Yeshua was exploited. Yeshua, well, he was the, he was the victim of, of oppression. Uh, and in that sense, he stands with so many other people throughout the ages. 
He stands with all the countless victims for thousands of years of communism, of fascism, of slavery, of Catholic inquisitions, of Islamic jihad. He knew what it was like to be under the lash. He knew what it was like to stand up to corrupt government powers and kangaroo courts and to be struck down. He knew what it was like to be lynched. Yeshua suffered the injustice of corrupt human justice systems. What does that mean? In Colossians 2, we're told that when Yeshua went to the cross, what did he do? He defeated the powers and principalities in high places. Colossians 2.15 Having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Now notice in our passage... When Peter begins to to rebuke Yeshua, Peter sides with the human authorities who are actually against Yeshua's mission. And therefore, Yeshua calls Peter Satan. Now, now why does Yeshua do this? Does he think Peter is now actually literally frothing at the mouth? uh, Needs an exorcism? Probably not. What it means is that behind these human power structures that exploit and oppress people are demonic forces. It also means that at this moment, Peter had the same agenda as Satan. He wanted Yeshua to take the crown without first going to the cross, which would have forfeited our redemption. He wanted Yeshua to take the role of Messiah ben David without first fulfilling his crucial mission as Mashiach ben Yosef, Messiah, son of Joseph, who suffers and atones for our sins and procures our salvation by dying on our behalf and paying the penalty that otherwise would fall on us. The initial declaration that Yeshua was God's beloved son, Mark chapter 1, it's immediately followed, if you remember, by his temptation by Satan in the wilderness, where Satan does what? Satan offers him all the kingdoms of this world if he would just bow, if Yeshua would just bow down and worship him. And Yeshua rebukes Satan. And then it says Satan left him, quote, for a more opportune time, or until a more opportune time. Now this drama is played out again, on a human level, where Peter unwittingly takes up Satan's agenda to offer Yeshua on the overhead, to offer Yeshua a kingdom without a cross. In the Gospel of Mark, we see Yeshua's severe testing three times. In the beginning of his ministry, chapter 1, temptation in the wilderness. Number 2, in the middle, right here at Caesarea Philippi, with P- Peter telling him not to go to, to, to the cross. And then finally, number 3, at the Garden of Gethsemane, at the end of his ministry, the Garden of Gethsemane, we sure praise uh, for this cup to be taken from him. Three times he's, he's tested. And in each case, the temptation is to try to get Yeshua to avoid what God wants him to do. This explains Yeshua's strong response to Peter. Peter was acting the part of Satan and tempting Yeshua to go against the specific divine will that compels Yeshua to the cross. Now, what does it mean when the scriptures say that on the cross, Yeshua conquered evil's power over us? That he defeated the principalities and powers, both human and demonic. What does that mean? Well, here's at least one thing it means. When Yeshua went to the cross... uh, and won through losing, and got power and influence through service, and got all the riches of glory by giving up all his wealth, 
When Yeshua got our pardon and forgiveness on the cross by turning the values of the world upside down, one thing it means is that the world's glorification of fleshly power and privilege and recognition and status and money was exposed and defeated. The world's systems were defeated. How so? Their power was broken over those people who now trust in Yeshua. How so? Well, the the worst thing that the corrupt powers of this world can use to, to intimidate you and control you is the fear of death. The worst thing they can do is to kill you. And they use this fear to control you. But that fear of death is broken if you know that Yeshua died and rose again from the grave. If you embrace Yeshua and you know that therefore you know that the worst thing that can happen to you, death, is the best thing now. <laughs> the death itself only make you something glorious. Death will just put you into Yeshua's arms. Death will transform you into what you've always wanted to be. When death loses its sting, when death no longer has this power over you, because of what Yeshua has done on the cross, then nothing has power over you anymore. If Yeshua becomes the source of your significance and your security, you don't need money as your source of significance and security. You don't need power as your source of significance and security. You don't need any people's approval as your source of significance and security. This is no longer how you get your sense of self-worth. They just become things to use for God's glory. And so power and recognition uh, and money uh, and even death itself, their power over you has been conquered because Yeshua went to the cross and exposed and defeated these powers. On the overhead, these are three reasons why Yeshua had to die. If he hadn't died and rose again, number one, your lives could not be transformed by his love. Number two, you could not have received pardon and forgiveness for your sins. Number three, the power of death and evil and the world's systems and Satan could not be broken over you on the overhead. But Yeshua had to die in order to conquer the power of evil over you. In order to get your pardon, your forgiveness, and to transform your life with his love. And by the way, on the overhead now, these are actually three, the three global themes of the atonement. That theologians have, have, have described for, for, for hundreds of years. Uh, Christus Victor, defeating the powers of evil. Uh, Christus Exemplar, changing and transforming us by his love. And Christus Substitute, Messiah our substitute. Taking out our sins and the penalty we deserve. Suffering and dying. Suffering God's wrath in our place. So that we can receive God's mercy and grace and forgiveness and righteousness. That's why he had to die Yeshua says I'm a king but not like any other king you ever could have imagined I'm not going to change the world I'm not going to renew the world I'm not going to save you I'm not going to change your life by going to a throne all other kings go to a throne but I'm going to a cross on the overhead that's the first thing he says in this passage the second thing is equally important if, if you want to follow me, he says, you've got to go to the cross too. Look at Mark 8, verse 34. Yeshua says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. And the overhead. 
In other words, the rest of our passage explains this means uh, three things. Number one, it means you need to get a new identity. You need to get a new agenda, number two. And number three, you need to get a new hope. First, you need to get a new identity. You must lose yourself to find yourself. Look at Mark 8.35. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whatever loses their life for me and for the gospel's sake will save it. Uh, the word life here uh, that's used here in this verse is the word psyche. Uh, we get our word uh, psychology uh, from this word. Uh, excuse me. In Greek, uh, this word is a term that means your identity, uh, your personality, uh, your, your selfhood, what makes you distinct and valuable, your identity. Yeshua is not saying here that I want you to lose the sense that you have an individual self. No, that would be Eastern philosophy and religion, to have no self. Uh, if he meant that, he would have said you must lose yourself to lose yourself. <laughs> but he doesn't say that. Because ultimately, he wants us to find ourselves, our true selves, in him. Yeshua is saying, don't build your identity on the things of this world. Instead, indeed, look at Mark eight thirty six. Indeed, what good is it for you to gain the whole world, yet forfeit your soul? Every culture points to certain things and says, if you gain these, if you acquire these, if you achieve these, then you know you're someone. Then you have a self. Then you know you're valuable. Now, every culture is different. Traditional cultures would say, you're nobody unless you have a family uh, and children. You're nobody unless you have a successful and happy family. In contrast, individualistic Western cultures say, you're nobody unless you have a career. Uh, a fulfilling career, a skilled career, a successful career, money, reputation, status. Every culture says identity is gain-based, performance-based, achievement-based. And if you get these things, whatever that culture happens to say, if you get these things, then you know you're somebody. Then you know you have a self. Then you know you're valuable. But Yeshua says that will never work. He says you can gain the whole world, and you still would not have a true identity. And no matter how, many of these, how much of these things you gain, it's never really enough uh, to make you sure who you are. And, and, and if anything ever threatens those things, if you're building your identity, uh, for example, if somebody loves me, uh, if you're building your identity uh, on a good career, if anything goes wrong with any of these things, you fall apart. You feel like you don't have a self. And you don't. Because yourself is completely based on these fragile, non-permanent, changeable things. Now you're beginning to see how radical Yeshua is. He's not saying, I want you to shift from one thing-based, gain-based, performance-based identity to another. No. He's not saying uh, that he wants you to say, oh, I've been immoral, so now I've got to be moral. Now I've got to start going to shul and read my Bible keep my nose clean, then I know I'll, I'm a good person. Then I'll know I'm spiritual. Yeshua says, I don't want you to sh- simply shift from one gain-based, one performance-based identity to another. Rather, he says, I want you to find a whole new way. I want you to lose the old self, lose the old identity, in favor of basing yourself and your identity on me and the gospel. 
Notice this reference to the gospel. Yeshua was saying you can't be abstract about this. You can't say, okay, I'm gonna, I won't build my identity, I won't do this on, on somebody else's approval, uh, because that co- approval comes and goes. Uh, I can't build my identity on my career and success and romance. Okay, I'll build my life on God. Yeshua is saying no. <laughs> That's too abstract. And if it's just, just an act of your will, uh, no life has ever been changed just through an act of your will. On the overhead. The only thing that can reforge and completely change a life at its root is love. And Yeshua says, you're never going to know me just as a teacher. Just as some abstract principle. You have to look at the gospel on the overhead. And Yeshua says, when you look at the gospel, you see that on the cross, I went to the cross. I did it. When I did that, I lost my identity. I was forsaken. I lost my identity so that you could have one. On the cross, I lost my relationship with the Father, which was my identity, which was the source of my identity. Which is why on the cross, he quotes Psalm 22, look at verse 6. Psalm 22, verse 6, David says, but I'm a worm and no man. On the cross, Yeshua lost his identity, his relationship with his Father. Why? You pay the price of sin so that we could have, by God's grace, adoption as sons and daughters of the Father. That's love. And if you see the Son of God doing that for you, if you don't just know it intellectually, but but you're moved by it uh, viscerally, uh, existentially, then you begin to get strength. Yes. Uh, Then you begin to get an assurance. You begin to get a sense of your own value and distinctiveness which is not based on things you're doing. It's not based on whether someone else loves you. It's not based on your looks or how much money you've got. It's not based on any particular thing. You're free. The old approach to identity is gone. It's nailed to the cross. No one put this better than than, than C.S. Lewis on the overhead. He says says this in, in Mere Christianity. He says, the more we get what we now call ourselves out of the way... And let him take us over, the more truly ourselves we become. Our real selves are waiting for us in him. The more I resist him and try to live on my own, the more I become dominated by my own heredity and upbringing and surroundings and drives. Without him, what I so proudly call myself, becomes merely the meeting place uh, for trains of events which I never started uh, and can never stop. Most of what I call me can be very easily explained uh, by my physical drives or by what others have said and done to me. But it's only when I turn to Messiah, when I give myself up to his personality, that I finally begin to have a real personality all of my own. And he warns us, nevertheless, you mustn't go to Messiah for the sake of a new self, As long as it's your own self that you're concentrating on, you haven't really begun to go to him. Your real new self won't come as long as you're looking for it. It'll only come when you're looking for him. Amen. So on the overhead, taking up our cross, your cross, means number one, getting a new identity. Secondly, it means getting a new agenda. When Peter hears Yeshua is going to Jerusalem to suffer and die... 
Which, by the way, we're probably going to require Peter to suffer and die as well, or at least suffer. No, he's furious. Why? Because Peter had an agenda. And this agenda had, had Yeshua and himself going on from strength to strength. And he did not have crosses or suffering or death on that agenda. He had an agenda. He thought Yeshua was going to get him to that agenda. But when he sees that Yeshua is not going to get him that agenda, he rebukes Yeshua. But you can't have Yeshua in your life like that. Because in that case, your agenda is the ends, and Yeshua is just the means. You're just using him for your own agenda. But Yeshua is the king. You cannot come to a king negotiating. No. With kings, you lay down your sword at his feet, and you say, command me. You don't come to a king and say, I'll obey you if. If you say, I'll obey you if, you're not obeying. You're trying to negotiate. But don't forget this. Yeshua is not just a king. He's a king on a cross. If he was only a king, you would submit to him because you have to. But he's a king who went to the cross for you. So why don't you want to submit to him and obey him? He's a king who went to the cross for you. He's not like any other king on a throne. He's a king on a cross. And therefore you can trust him. How much more then should you come to him? Not negotiating, but saying, Lord, whatever you do, whatever you say, I will do. Whatever you send, I will accept. Because in the Garden of Gethsemane, you, Yeshua, said, not my will, but thine be done. For me, you did this for me. And now I will say, not my will, but thine be done for you. On the overhead. How can you come to grips with someone who gave himself utterly for you like this, without you also wanting to give yourself utterly for him? On the overhead. When Yeshua says to take up your cross, he means to die to self-determination. Die to the control of your own life. Die to using me, Yeshua says, for, for your own agenda. On the overhead. So when Yeshua says to deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me, he's saying you must do these three things. Number one, get a new identity. Number two, get a new agenda. And then finally, number three, get a new hope. What do I mean by that? Look at Mark 9, verse 1, last verse of our passage. Truly I tell you, some of you are standing, who are standing here won't taste death until the Malkut HaShemayim, the kingdom of God, comes with power. Now some people have thought that Yeshua was saying here, this generation won't pass away uh, until I return. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, I started in weakness, but someday there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. The kingdom of God begins in weakness. It begins with, with, with repentance. It begins with relinquishment. It begins with giving up your rights to your own life. It begins with admitting you need a savior. You need someone to fulfill the requirements and to pay for your sins. It begins in weakness. And Yeshua says, I started in weakness by going to the cross. And if you want me in your life, you must start in weakness as well. The kingdom of God begins in weakness. But it won't always be in weakness. Because someday a new heavens and a new earth 
is coming. And in this new heavens and new earth, love will finally triumph over hate. And life will triumph over death. And even in this generation, you're going to begin to see in stages the kingdom of God beginning to come with power. You see we're saying you'll see it in the resurrection. You'll see it on Shavuot with the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And three of you, Peter, James, and John, you're going to see a glimpse of it in its fullness right now. At the Mount of Transfiguration, which we're going to look at next week. You'll see the kingdom of God coming with power and glory and majesty. And therefore, whatever it costs you to follow me now, it'll be more than made up for in the future. C.S. Lewis comments on this passage about losing your life to find it on the overhead. And he says this, give up yourself and you'll find your real self. Lose your life and you'll save it. Submit to death, the death of your ambitions uh, and your favorite wishes every day and the death of your whole body in the end. Submit with, with every fiber of your being and you'll find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Nothing that you haven't given away will ever really eternally be yours. Nothing in you that hasn't died will ever be raised from the dead. Look for yourself. Look after yourself. And you'll find in the long run only loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Messiah and you'll find him. And with him, everything else thrown in. Amen. Let's stand and pray. I'd like the music team to come on up. Hallelujah. Thank you, Father. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, for this word today. The Yeshua is the Messiah. The Yeshua is the Son of Man and the Son of God and the King. But paradoxically, you tell us today, Lord, that he's the King on a cross. Not the type of King that our people were expecting, but the type of King we desperately needed. A King on a cross. A king who loved us enough to suffer and die for us. To atone for our sins as our substitute. As our sacrifice offering. Suffering the wrath we deserve, Lord. So that we might have your righteousness. Yeshua, thank you. For loving us so much. That you would not take up your throne. Without first going to the cross. You loved us unconditionally. And radically. And vulnerably. You held nothing back. But you gave up all for us, making our redemption your top priority. Now, Lord, help us to love and serve you and live for you and worship you in the same way. Unconditionally, radically, vulnerably. Having our desire to please and honor you be our number one priority. Transform our hearts, Lord, to our greatest joy is your joy. Help us, Yeshua, to deny ourselves, to take up our individual crosses, and to follow you. We agree that to follow you and to take up our cross means we must die to self. Die to self-determination and self-ambition and our own self-driven agendas. And instead to seek first your kingdom of your righteousness. Help us to lose our life, Lord, so that we may find it. Find, to find true life. Help us to lose our life for you, Yeshua. And for the gospel, which leads us to ultimate eternal life with you. Lord Yeshua, not my will, but yours be done. I pray this in your name. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Shabbat Shalom.